For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts and today we are delighted to be joined by John Paul Flintoff. John Paul is a journalist, a writer and an artist. His books include Comp, A Survivor's Story, So Your Own and most recently, Psalms for the City, original poetry inspired by the places we call home. John Paul, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you very much for having me. So we'll start where we always do at the beginning and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? Ah, I have this... It's so unformed, but I think I remember being very jealous of my younger brother for having Farley's Rusks, which I was no longer having. So I think that's probably the earliest thing I remember. But the most abiding long-term childhood, early childhood memory is of doing gymnastics at my primary school and always finding little peas on the floor. Wherever we were... There was always a pea nearby and it put me off the peas, even though it didn't make any sense. They could have been wonderful on the plate and then terrible on the floor. But seeing (laughs) them on the floor made me not like them on the plate. Please say that the the gymnastics took place in the dining hall and that there was a link there. There was a link. Yeah, the the tables were put away and then we did gym. (laughs) Right. Okay. I mean, that's a happier ending to the story, but still still (laughs) disconcerting. And... Apart from envy of Rusks, what was food like at home? Were were mealtimes important to your family? It's so hard to know relative to other people's families. They're certainly important to me because I'm no good if I haven't got food. And one of the things that I remember was that my mother had a full-time job throughout my childhood as a lawyer. And so she would then come home and cook for us. And I would often ask her what what's for dinner and I now realise that she probably didn't know but she would say wait and see in this rather tantalising way and uh, it really used to drive me crazy because I just wanted to know I wanted so much to know it was like watching a thriller and not knowing what's going to happen at the end is the hero going to survive <laughs> and when when it was served what sort of things were you eating for tea at home mum was quite experimental in a good way, about trying things that she'd read in magazines. They're often a bit on the hippie side, so there'd be some sort of vegetarian thing, which was before everybody seemed to be talking about that kind of thing. One of my all-time favourites, I think it was given to me as a, as a treat for my birthday, I would be allowed to choose what we have for dinner, it was a homemade biryani that she concocted. And I remember very little about what was in it, except it had toasted almonds on the top. That was very special. And alongside her slightly adventurous cooking, were you an adventurous eater or were you put off by the unusual things she was making? I think when I was really young, and I thought about this a lot when my daughter was young, I think maybe there's a stage when children are very young when they find lots of things really disgusting and it's a useful stage in learning to sort of navigate through what's safe and what isn't. I used to be really revolted by candied peel for some reason. I can't quite, like, why that? I don't know. But generally, I was quite an am still quite an enthusiastic eater, and I often actually make mistakes and order the most bizarre things on a menu just because they're bizarre, and sometimes rather regret that. And how do you feel about candied peel now? 
it's okay. I can chomp my way through whatever kind of a fruitcake has it. And it's like, no, no big deal. I also hated desiccated coconut for a long time. I was convinced that it would make me vomit, but there was no grounds for that. I just thought it's, it's too granular. It was like a mouthful of sand. Is there anything, just jumping ahead, is there anything now that, that you wouldn't eat or, or that you've had and, and really hated? Gosh, that's a good question. I don't even remember what it was called or anything, but we went on holiday to France once and they had this thing, like a, something like a sausage, and I ordered, I asked for it, and the waiter sort of looked at me like, are you sure? And, and I said, well, what is it? And he described it. I didn't really understand the details until it turned up, and it really just seemed to be just kind of stomach lining, inside stomach lining. It was just really grim. Just, no, I don't think I want that, but I don't know what it was called, so I wouldn't know how to avoid it. It wasn't on yet. I don't think, well, maybe, yeah. I'll have to go and look that up now and find photos. <laughs> and did you, did you work your way through it or did you sort of politely no, push it I, to one side? No. No. <laughs> I've, done, I've done the working my way through it thing with, in other occasions, but here I was just, no, I can't make it anymore. This is just too much. <laughs> one mouthful was really enough. And so going back to your youth, because I, I did jump ahead there, you've written well, a whole book about your, your time at comprehensive school. What was the food like when you when you were there the food was probably all right considering that most school food is pretty grim I did learn early on that it was best not to be late so you could, you could either play football and then have lunch or queue for lunch and then have less time for playing football if you did the lunch second you always found that everything had gone except the spam fritters and that was not a price worth paying so that was my way around that. But also, it was a London secondary school, so as soon as we could, we would just leave the ground and go and get something elsewhere. And what would you get outside of school? Some kind of sandwich, probably. Nothing tremendously exciting. The, the thing that I do remember most about my school and food is that I really resented, as a teenage boy, having to do home economics. And I thought, why do I have to do that? That's so silly. It's just... I was just narrow-minded and now I look back and think that was so great that they made me cook those biscuits and that jealousy tart and make jam and make bread and and I started it earlier I didn't do a brilliant job I'm sure but I did it and I learned how to wash up and I really learned to be okay at coping in the kitchen which was brilliant. And so when you went to university to study English were your cooking and, and washing up skills tested there or were you living in halls? I lived in a hall and I always ate whatever was available. There's, there's a consistent theme here, which is that I really like food and I don't like being hungry. So I didn't miss <laughs> a single breakfast, no matter how late we'd been out the night before. I remember being quite struck. So I went to university in Bristol and it was one of the first times that I met a real Bristol person was in the canteen serving the food. And I was delighted when she put some food on my plate and they said, there you are, my lover. And I thought, that's such an unusual thing to say. I, didn't, I hadn't heard that anywhere else. And I thought it sounded like <laughs> a very warm thing to say. So I, was, I felt very welcome. And what are your earliest memories outside of home economics lessons of, of cooking yourself or, or cooking for other people? Well, I was in the Scouts. And it's never going to be particularly fine cooking. But realising that one can cope with some sticks and some fire and a, a pan that's going to get really, really hard to wash... That was probably another early one. So I suppose the theme is of, of acquiring a sense of competence. That's what I enjoyed. And were restaurants a feature of your growing up or, or your undergraduate life? 
I've still got the wine bottle from the meal where I went out with my wife the first time. So I obviously did That's go so to a restaurant. Lovely. I haven't got any wine in it, obviously, now. Good. Then it went well. That was a long time ago, yeah. Actually, I say that. I've just, I actually just last week opened a 1998 bottle of wine. I'm not the sort of person who has that sort of thing. But when we got married, I injured my foot and we were given loads of bottles of wine and things. And one of them was this bottle that I just put aside somewhere and I completely forgot about it. And I was sure it would be off, but it was really nice. So I've just, mm. I've, I didn't think I would ever be able to say I've opened a 24-year-old bottle of wine, but I have and it's still going. It's in the fridge now. And that, I think that's so romantic about the wine bottle. When you took that with you, did you think, I'm taking this because this is the woman I'm going to marry? Or, or was it just a souvenir? What, what were you thinking when you took it? It would be dishonest to claim to remember for sure but it could be any (laughs) any of those things it wouldn't be uncharacteristic of me to think any of those things it could have been just that we hadn't finished and we took it away and then I'm not even sure which of us particularly would have carried it away but we somehow ended up both of us holding on to it so we still have it down in the kitchen oh that's such a lovely memento oh it's thrown me because it's so nice Tell me about your time as a journalist, because you you worked for the Financial Times and therefore got to do some of their lunch with, with FT interviews. Is that right? Absolutely. I think it's maybe one of the most wonderful columns that you could imagine. It's kind of a restaurant review, but it's also a meeting with a really interesting person. And I just absolutely loved doing those. I had the wonderful experience of having a lunch with Harold Pinter, who was a bit of a foodie and really knew his wines. And then he sort of, uh, just brilliant. I mean, here I am sitting with Harold Pinter and, and with other people too. And I just thought that was probably as good as it gets in journalism was to be able to do that sort of thing. It's a platitude, but meeting interesting people is one of the best things about journalism. And why do you think the restaurant setting works so well for interviewing somebody? Well, I was I was thinking about this before I came on. I was thinking, what do I like? And do I like big meals with lots of people? Do I like dinner parties? Do I like just a domestic meal? Do I like the one-to-one of those lunches with the FT? I think I like all of them. But there's there's a necessary intimacy. And there's a kind of... There's a sort of buying time about having a meal. Of course, someone can get up and just stalk off because they've had enough. But there's a sort of, we're going to be here till this meal's finished. And that's a very civilised thing. It's also the idea of breaking bread with someone is always going to be slightly more intimate than not eating with them. Did you ever feel self-conscious in those circumstances of, of, you know, whether you were ordering the right thing or, I don't know, I'm I'm sad to say I've not been in that position. I'm deeply jealous. Tell, Tell me that it was very difficult and hard work and you didn't enjoy it at all. I just completely can't say that because I loved it and I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> and I didn't mind. In fact, I probably, at that stage in my career, I probably made fun of myself a lot as a part of the way of being humorous in my writing. And so the fact that I would get something wrong or make the wrong choice, it always felt more comfortable to me to make fun of myself than to make fun of them. Although I did do that a little bit too. So I didn't mind about not really knowing what, what to do. Also, I suppose there's something about being the journalist and being the the shadow person. It's all really meant to be about them. It doesn't really matter if I get it wrong. I'm just interested in what are they ordering. Your book, Sew Your Own, is about making making your own clothes, really. Clearly, you are a very 
competent person and, and you said that the satisfaction you found from being in the scouts and doing home economics and, and sort of learning basic skills that allow you if not to be self-sufficient then sufficient perhaps do you do much of your own cooking and baking now oh yeah I'm definitely the main cooking person although I practically never do baking of cakes and that's my wife's territory she's good at it and I like eating but I I just really like to be able to improvise something in the kitchen. That's definitely my favourite kind of cooking, is not to follow a recipe, but to use a lot of my instinct, based on experience, of course, and I have followed recipes. It's not like I've sort of worked it all out entirely on my own. But I might have seen something or tried something, and I love things like uh, Nikki Chenyit's book, I don't know if I pronounced her name right, but The, the Food Thesaurus, which talks about the, the great ways to pair flavours. The flavour for thesaurus, I think, is called. It is. It is one of my very favourite books. It's so good. She's brilliant. Just to be perfectly honest, I don't really actually look at it very often, but I look at it once or twice and I go, God, I've got to go and do something like that. Yeah. And I don't want to follow something that feels depressing. Just depressingly kind of do it like this. That's probably why I don't bake. I want to be able to skitter about a bit, try and remedy it, make it a bit better see if it will be okay. I also really like the thing about process, and I'd say this is the same with writing and with making art. I really love the process as much as the final outcome. I remember as a child, my, my dad's an actor, and I once asked him, like, why do you want to act when it's so ephemeral? It doesn't last. You've created this thing and it's gone. And I couldn't understand why, why there's a pleasure in live performance. But now I can really see that that's what I like about cooking. I don't make something for it to be preserved for hundreds of years. I make something to eat it and then it's forgotten. But it's the making of it that's so fun. And I think that's the same with, for example, if I'm making a a drawing or a painting, all the joy goes if I'm only worried about whether the final thing is any good. I think that's such a wonderful way of looking and so beautifully articulated. Actually, it makes me think, have you read um, Nikki Segnett's second book, Lateral Cooking? No. So what she does there is looks at how... I suppose processes, although not quite the same sort of process we're talking about there, move between different types of cooking and how you build on one particular process and it it becomes something else. You know, there's a chapter on batters and how if you up the flour level to this, you've gone from a clafuti to a pancake and that kind of thing. And it's 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 not written like a flow chart of cookery or a choose your own adventure, but it sort of has that feel to it. And it has the same, I'm just, I'm just doing PR for Nikki Segner now because she is one of my absolute favourite food writers. But she manages that in the same way that she does with the flavour thesaurus. She's really funny and there mm. are vignettes and anecdotes all the way through. And I just think that is kind of cookery writing for the modern age, being able to, you know, turn your hand to anything really by having these these base levels of knowledge of of flavor and and technique I suppose yeah I think I think it's one of the the killers of creativity is having too much abundance and having no constraint so if you realize that you if you can go into the supermarket and buy absolutely anything then that makes it paradoxically quite difficult whereas if you go in and, and there's only sort of three things that you'd ever like anyway then you go home quite happy because you can work with those so I like I like constraints they really give me a creative spark in some way let's talk about that creativity you started after your English degree you had your career as a, a journalist when did the drawing come into it because you've you've incorporated your art into your latest book yes 
Where did that come from? Well, when I was 14, I won an, an award for adult artists and I thought, that's it, I'm going to be an artist. And then an art teacher made me think it was going to be really difficult. And so I thought, OK, I'll give up. And I became a writer instead. Always wanted to be an artist, always made art, drawings and things, but just for friends and so on. Then I had a breakdown in 2018 and part of the way that I recovered was by drawing 250 drawings or so in hospital. And my psychiatrist said, oh, you've got to keep doing this. This is really powerful. This is really good. And uh, although at the time I had practically no self-confidence and thought I was a total waste of space, I, I did hear her and I knew that she was sincere. And so I just kept doing it. And part of my recovery was, was simply noticing that the drawings that I'd started with were really raw and quite frightening to look at and quite stark. And they'd be black and white and a little bit of red. And then they became more and more capturing beautiful things I'd be drawing blossom and I'd be drawing things with a rich range of colors and I just noticed and I thought that is a good sign that's healthy that's that's a wonderful thing to be able to see things that are beautiful and that I love and to be able to capture them and for me drawing something is to be really in that thing and it's a bit like cooking in that way you can't sort of do it with half a mind on something else and I, I wanted to ask you about your breakdown 2018 I know, I know you've written about it and spoken about it before I hope it doesn't sound flippant to ask about the way you ate and cooked during that time. We we often talk on Table Talk about the the sucker and the comfort that, that food can bring. What happened to the way that you ate and sort of sustained yourself during that time? Really good question. Not at all flippant, really important and really glad you asked. I realised with hindsight that I had not been eating well and that was only one component of what may have contributed to the breakdown as much as just being an incidental. And then in the hospital, I always remember that, I was, again, it's a bit like at school and at university, I felt so grateful to the people who just who had a job to serve food. They were, they were just doing their job, but they gave me the food. And I felt like this huge, like, oh, thank you for my fish and chips at the psychiatric hospital. I always had fish and chips if it was available. Then when I came home, Cooking was one of the ways in which I could cope because I had so little confidence in anything that being able to do even the smallest thing that I kind of intellectually knew I could do but didn't really believe I could anymore. So boiling an egg successfully was like, yes, I can do that. So there's an element of sort of relearning things like you see in the movies when someone has to learn how to walk again. It felt like I had to learn Mm. everything again. I also got a commission to get into physical shape for a newspaper and the celebrity trainer Dalton Wong looked after me for a month and he also told me to go on a, on a no-carbohydrate diet, which was, again, it was one of those wonderful constraints because I had to try to think, how do I fill myself up? How do I make this plate interesting? And I remember I had this game for weeks in my head. It was only me, no one ever knew about it, but I had this game, can I put something on my plate that nobody within a, within the nearest mile or five miles, and I live in London, is eating today? Like, could I be that different, but still make something palatable and enjoyable? And so I tried the widest range of different salads and things like that. I really enjoyed it. And did you miss carbs while you were doing it? There's a period of a few days where it felt difficult. And it was a bit like fasting. It feels a bit difficult at first. And then afterwards, it's like this huge joy. No, it's mm. fine. Absolutely not. As soon as I would got through that, that hump, I didn't miss them at all. I only went back onto them because Christmas came and I didn't want to miss out on the general fun of all of those carbohydrate-heavy things, so I just went back and that was fine. And when you're 
when you're not restricted by a no carb diet and you're cooking at home and as you say you're you're sort of the main cook apart from apart from cakes and sweet baking what kind of things are you making I mean given no constraints actually we've talked about how helpful constraints are what do you like to cook I do like to cook spicy food I like to experiment with a friend of mine died in 2019 and she left me some of her recipe books and Indian cooking and so there are some things in there which I which I've tried to internalize rather than following a recipe because I don't really like as you know so if I can internalize what kinds of spices go well with each other and I love to play around with that and see a little bit more of this one a little bit more of that one maybe none of that today and there's a range of spices that I'm not used to using together cinnamon and clove and pepper and cardamom I, I haven't really used those much so I'm really at the moment really enjoying trying those with different things and how has having children changed the way that you cook or eat well my daughter was quite a fuss pot and is still and so it has meant that I've had to learn to cook something for someone else's pleasure apart from my wife's which I was already doing but I have to cook to be successful at feeding. Mm. There's no point cooking something she's not going to eat, but also try to encourage her to find a way into liking something. And then to cope with what I think is just kind of part of the to and fro of adults and offspring behaviour. She'll tell me that she don't like something anymore. And it's like, oh no, so right, okay, let's find some workaround. And at times it gets very, very limited, but Again, it's another constraint. So there's that there's that mm. creative process of thinking, oh no, I don't want this. I wish I only wish that she would eat these things. To going, oh brilliant, I can. I'll try this, and it's that leap yeah, from yeah. hating it to then loving it. It just makes life worth being alive, isn't it? Yeah, I, my my brother-in-law is vegan and his wife is vegetarian, but allergic to alliums and a, a few other sort of staple things that I would normally cook with. And I, I go through that same emotional thing of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And then actually it is a pleasurable challenge because it's taking mm. me outside of the sort of fail safes that I would that I would return to all the time. And you actually end up having something far nicer as a yeah. consequence. Yeah. How old is your daughter? She's now 19. So she's just gone ah. to university and, and cooking for her all the time is no longer an issue. So now it's like Liberty Hall in the house. Yeah. Just feasting like Henry VIII. Yeah, totally. <laughs> What's comfort food for you? Well, a nice bit of buttered toast is definitely comfort food. I mean, come on. It's a good choice. A nice bit of buttered toast and a cup of tea. But beyond that, I do like, I said fish and chips, I like fat plus carbohydrate, I suppose. That's probably it. Do you have a sweet tooth? Yes. I like cake. I like quite an an interest in dark chocolate, which isn't particularly sweet. I was thinking, what's my favourite dessert or pudding it's probably tiramisu and I think it's the the bitterness of the coffee as well as everything else so it's not I don't have a really sweet tooth I don't like really sweet things but I definitely wouldn't want to go without any sweet and if I sent you off to the corner shop with a couple of quid what are you coming back with tin of sardines <laughs> I don't know oh you, did you mean sweets <laughs> I don't know well not necessarily sweets I was I was thinking I was thinking more you know a Kit Kat chunky or a packet of walkers but I like I like your thinking <laughs> I, I don't know where that came from but I I felt like it had to come out <laughs> I'm not letting you do anything with them you have to eat them as they are but that's fine that's okay okay <laughs> <laughs> 
Just to finish, we always ask what someone's desert island meal is, but unfortunately, some people think that means that we are casting them away with nothing but a net and a spear. We're not. We're just trying not to be morbid and calling it a death ray meal. What is your ultimate meal? It can be as elaborate or as simple as you like. I already feel like there's such a heavy burden of it's got to be something really complicated and amazing with a question like that. But actually, one of the... You mentioned me being a journalist, and I once went to interview Alice Fowler, the gardening writer and she had chickens in the garden and she had lots of plants including Cavallo Nero and I remember being so impressed and satisfied that she could get one of the the eggs from the garden and a few leaves of Cavallo Nero and fry them and we had some toast with it and I just thought that was really great so I think it wouldn't necessarily be exactly that combination it would be something really simple with what's available that would really satisfy me. That feels so deliciously in keeping with everything that you've said so far you have a very strong brand (laughs) (laughs) thank you i think and would you have anything to drink alongside it i do think that my favorite drink that i've acquired a taste for in the last in the sort of second half of my life is a really nice malt whiskey so i'd probably have um a talisker a lovely choice thank you john paul thank you so much for joining table talk thank you and John Paul's book, Psalms for the City, original poetry inspired by the places we call home, is available now.